From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind. Your mind. Welcome to From the Void. Welcome to From the Void and part two of my conversation and interview with author and researcher Simon Reed, where we talk all about his book, The Blackout Murders, the shocking true story about the Blackout Ripper. Welcome to this week's mystery, part two of The Blackout Ripper on From the Void. One of the things they find lying near her is a bloody razor blade. Uh, so it looks like he uses a tin opener and a razor blade on her. Um, they are able to lift fingerprints from the handle of the razor blade. The head of Scotland Yard's fingerprint department at the time is this brilliant guy named Frederick Cheryl, really fascinating character uh, in his own right. But he he lifts uh, he lifts a thumbprint, I think it is, from the razor blade handle, and he really sees that it is. Uh, a left-handed thumbprint. He's an expert on fingerprints. He can tell which hand leaves the prints. It's really fascinating when you read sort of like his stuff on how he, he, he determines all this stuff. Um, and this is kind of like ignites a spark because what they're able to do from the Evelyn Hamilton crime scene uh, is she has a uh, sort of like a compact mirror in her purse and they're able, and the killer's gone through her purse and they're able to lift a print from the compact mirror, which also shows that it was held by someone who was left-handed. So you suddenly have a left-handed individual tied to these two killings. And that's, that's the first indication. Please have that. Maybe something's happening here. Yeah. I think that's a really fascinating uh, part of this entire, uh, you know, crime is the fact that the, uh, first of all, let's talk about Scotland Yard a little bit, because I know you're writing some additional material on, yeah. on them and have written about them in the past. Um, for folks who don't know what Scotland Yard is, this is really the premier uh, detective, so, you know, group of detectives, right? Yeah, yeah. Scotland Yard is, <clears throat> Scotland Yard is really the name for the London Police Department, the London Metropolitan Police Service. Which, uh, and so it is, goes by the name Scotland Yard. Uh, people always ask, why is it called Scotland Yard? You know, the, the, no one really knows the answer. The, the, the most popular answer is that its original headquarters faced out on a or backed onto a, uh, a, a, a piece of open ground known as Great Scotland Yard. And it's believed that place was called Scotland Yard because back before England and Scotland uh, were unified, kings from Scotland would have to come down, you know, and, and bend the knee to their English counterpart. And they stayed at this royal residence for Scottish kings that was in Great Scotland Yard. And, you know, this is where the original headquarters for the police were built in 1829. And so the name Scotland Yard kind of attaches itself to uh, the police department. And so but when we talk about Scotland Yard, we're talking about sort of the headquarters for the London Metropolitan Police and sort of the, the Metropolitan Police Service itself. The name is the name is all encompassing. It is the world's actually first uh, centrally organized uh Police force, um, sort of American police departments have modeled themselves on Scotland Yard, um, New York Police Department, Boston Police Department. You know, they were the first Western police department to use uh, fingerprinting. They were the uh, 
the reason detectives wear rubber gloves at crime scenes is because of uh, Scotland Yard, because of a case where detectives were forced to handle raw flesh with their bare hands. Um, so uh, a lot of things that we see today on the CSI crime shows and uh, sort of you know, detective novels originated or were advanced by Scotland Yard. So it is kind of um, – there was an article in Time uh, a few years back, and they actually called it – I think they said that they're the, per, the premier brand name in policing, which is – you're good. Uh, some people like they're not the FBI. Some people sort of like equate them with the FBI. They're not. You know, the FBI is a federal law enforcement agency. Scotland Yard is a you know, it's, it's a metropolitan uh, police department. You know, there's there are big differences. But uh, yeah, Scotland Yard, it's obviously a, it, it's a big name in um, in policing. And uh, Scotland Yard is also responsible. They established the world's first sort of detective bureau, plainclothes detective bureau, in uh, 1842. And so uh, the detective bureau for Scotland Yard is the criminal investigations department. Uh, and it's the detectives from uh, the CID, as it's called, that handle, um, handle this investigation. And the lead investigator is a guy named Ted Greeno, seasoned investigator, worked on big cases during the war. He's an interesting character. He was uh, he was not afraid to like sort of rough people up if need be. He used to have a habit like if, if he was conf- if he confronted like a really surly suspect, he'd make a show of like taking off his coat and handing it to someone before he like rough the guy up. You know, he was like a really uh, interesting character. And the other guy who's helping the investigation is Fred Cheryl, who's head of Scotland Yard's uh, fingerprint bureau. And again, Scotland Yard's fingerprint department is uh, it was revolutionary. The world's first fingerprint department is actually established by the police in Calcutta. And then uh, Scotland Yard adopts fingerprinting in 1901. Sidetracking here, but just a bit of interesting history. 1904, when the crown jewels go on display at the uh, World Fair in St. Louis, uh, a detective from Scotland Yard comes over to sort of safeguard them and does a demonstration of fingerprinting at the World Fair. And sort of the American Police Chiefs Associations who are at the World Fair are kind of fascinated by this. They say, hey, tell us more. And that's how fingerprinting becomes adopted in the United States. St. Louis Police Department adopts it in 1904, and then other police departments. So that's how uh, sort of Scotland Yard kind of like spreads fingerprinting to other Western police departments. But the head of the department in um, 1942 is a guy named Frederick Terrell, who uh, fa- fascinating guy. He's an artist. He's known for drawing like caricatures of his uh, superior officers. You know, he's got a got a great sense of humor, and he's just got and because he's an artist, he's got a fine eye for detail. And, you know, what are fingerprints, if not really fine details? You know, he's got the fine eye for, you know, all the swirls and the loops. And he's really passionate about uh, passionate about this. And it's his work that really kind of cinches the deal on, um, you know, on, on nailing this guy. But uh, Greeno and uh, Frederick Chell are the two lead uh, yard investigators. And uh, they're an interesting pair. Yeah, and it's it's kind of fascinating. You talk uh, talked about a little bit earlier about how they found you know the remnants of beets in her stomach and were able to trace it down to a restaurant. And it's there's some it, other evidence too that they locate. And you're like, it's, wow, yeah, it's really cool. you know what was fascinating when um, you know researching this book is you know we're used today to seeing shows like CSI and you know other stuff where you know they have high tech things and they. You know, they'll take a picture of a fingerprint with their cell phone and then they feed it into some computer database. I'm like, boom, there's a suspect. Like, oh, we got him. You know, or else like trace the money and they type in a serial number and, you know, like all these locations sprout up on a like map on a wall or something. You know, that was not the case in 1942. You know, forensics are still very much in, um, 
in its in their sort of early stages. You know, you have fingerprints, you have you know ballistics are relatively uh, new science, and so seeing the way where they you know with Evelyn Hamilton where they do the autopsy and they're going through her stomach and they're picking out the food items and like oh beets all right well let's find out who served beets you know and then they got to go and hit all these restaurants in the area to find out who served beets i mean that's true detective work i mean it's like nose to the ground you know finding the trail and then you know once they'd found out where she'd eaten you know then they like sort of like okay well she ate here she was found here so she was obviously walking this way. So, okay, well, down this street, we know there are like boarding houses. Maybe she was staying in one of these boarding houses. Let's knock on doors and find out. And then they start knocking on doors, you know, and, and they find a landlady. He goes, oh, yeah, she was a guest here. Her name was Evelyn Hamilton. So it's every murder is like a little jigsaw puzzle they have to, uh, they have to put together. But when you read the case files and how they like piece all the stuff together, it's, it's really fascinating. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. Uh, the amount of, like, as you said, you know, it's uh, it, that's all manual work they have to do. It's all manual work, man. I mean, there's no computers and there's no, you know, they had, Scott and back in the day had what's called, and they still have it, it's called the Criminal Records Office, the CRO. And so if they had like a, mo- if they had like a sort of, you know, an MO, a modus operandi, right, of a certain crime, they'd call up the Criminal Records Office and they'd say, We've got some guy running around the city. This is what he does to his victims, or this is how he breaks into houses. Do we have any other crimes like that? And then someone at the records office would have to sit and go through all the files of the various sort of methods of criminal and go, oh, yeah, we've got a match. So everything was manual labor. You know, there were no, there's no like, oh, put it in the computer and see what it turns out. Yeah, that's yeah. absolutely yeah. wild to think about, you know. Um, and, and so one of the things that you mentioned is that this uh, Fred uh, Cheryl, who was a, you know, a real pioneer in the fingerprinting um, realm, uh, finds fingerprints but notices that, hey, whoever's prints these are, they don't have a record. No, they, 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 they don't have a record. And that's the, um, you know, that's the uh, challenge. So Scotland Yard, after, it developed its fingerprint bureau in 1901, and it, um, July 1901, and it, it actually builds up a huge uh, index of prints. And they have a system called the uh, Henry Classification System, which is named after uh, a Scotland Yard superintendent named uh, Edward Henry, who, along with two police detectives in Calcutta, had developed a system to identify prints very quickly. Because you got, you know, you got 10 prints, right? A print for each finger, like going through manually each print, you know, and then like indexing them against so that, that takes a long time. So they developed this sort of numbers system to sort of match prints very quickly. And so they do have these prints um, of a left-handed individual. They do go through uh, the print database, which is tens of thousands of prints they have on record. And there's no match. So, um, you know, you don't have a match. That's kind of a problem. Obviously, the fingerprint is great if you arrest a suspect and then you can compare. But, you know, ideally, it's nice if you get a match of someone that's already on record and then you can go and nab them. So they don't have a match. All they know is now they've got some guy running around out there. Um, They never use the term uh, serial killer. You know, serial killer is is not a recognized concept in uh 1942 you know even though jack the ripper is considered the first quote-unquote modern serial killer you know the term isn't developed until i think it's like the 60s or 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 70s i I think it's by the fbi but like the concept of serial killer isn't sort of a thing they just know they've got a guy running around 
killing people. Um, so all they know now is that they've, they've got uh, uh, the fingerprint of someone who's left-handed, and that's the only clue they have to go on. So they don't really have anything to sort of – they don't really have a starting point you know, for an investigation. They have a, a woman who's been murdered in an air raid shelter. Then they have a woman who's been murdered a few miles away in, uh, in an apartment, and the only thing matching them are these partial left-handed fingerprints and nothing else. Yeah, so so then you know he moves on to his third victim, Margaret Lowe. Um, you know she's a little bit. You know we talked about a little bit different. She's the widow who has the teenage daughter away at boarding school, and yeah. so uh, and again he he sort of follows the same mo as the second crime. Um, he escalates but- more with uh, yeah with Margaret Lowe. So uh, Margaret Lowe brings home uh, brings home the killer on the night of February. 11th um and it should be noted that you know with evelyn hamilton uh and um and uh evelyn uh oatley what, the thing about those cases is evelyn oatley is discovered on the morning of or evelyn hamilton excuse me a lot of evelyn's evelyn hamilton is discovered on the morning of february 9th um evelyn oatley is discovered on the morning of february 10th uh, and then you kind of go through the 11th and 12th where no bodies are discovered. But that doesn't mean the killer hasn't been busy. He has. His work just hasn't been discovered yet. But uh, Margaret Lowe brings home, uh, you know, Cummins on the night of uh, February 11th. And she's found two days uh, later. A neighbor hears her coming home um, and hears her coming up the stairs with a man, but uh, doesn't hear anything from the apartment that arouses um, suspicion. What arouses a suspicion is two days later when this package has been delivered outside Margaret Lowe's door and it hasn't been picked up. And her, her daughter comes home and knocks on the door because uh, the daughter comes home for a visit, knocks on the door, and no one answers. And this really gets uh, the neighbors' suspicions up because of this package that's been sitting there. They call the police. The police come. They open the door. They go in, and they find Margaret. She's she's lying in bed. She's been uh, she's been strangled uh, with a, uh, a stocking, um, and like Evelyn uh, Oatley, she has been uh, mutilated. But even more so, she has uh, probably of all, all the kids. You know, this one is very probably closest to the Jack the Ripper um, slayings. She's had her abdomen um, ripped open to expose the intestines and uh, some of the internal organs, and she's been uh, stabbed in the uh, genital area. She's also been, uh, she's been violated with a candle uh, as well. Um, and so he has really sort of escalated um, to a whole other um, level. He's also, and it's not known if he did this before or after, he's also poured himself a beer. Uh, and there is a, a beer glass sitting on the table that still has ale in it and uh, a, 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 a ball of oatmeal stout. And so police uh, show up at the scene, you know, uh, Cheryl, Frederick Cheryl shows up, you know, with his magnifying glass and, you know, he's a Sherlock Holmes for, you know, he goes over the, you know, goes over the crime scene with his magnifying glass and he finds uh, prints on the beer glass. And he also finds prints on uh, the uh, candlestick holder that was holding the candle that Margaret had, you know, sadly been uh, violated with. And when he's looking at the prints, even before he he like 
takes fingerprint does a fingerprint comparison he can tell from the way the prints are patterned on the holder from the way the grouping of four and the thumbprint are around the base of the holder he can tell that the candle holder has been held by a left-handed individual not a right-handed so um again he now knows that this is connected to the other cases he lifts a uh fingerprint from uh the beer glass and the the print on the beer glass is also from a left-handed individual while the police are processing the margaret low crime scene a scotland yard messenger shows up on a motorcycle comes in and says we found another body so they're not even done processing the margaret low crime scene they've found a couple miles away the body of uh doris Janot. again my apologies to doris because i'm sure i'm saying her last name incorrectly her husband has come home for dinner and can't get into uh, the apartment. And so uh, he calls police. The, um, the police. Actually, he gets into the apartment. What he sees is he sees dinner from the night before hasn't been like cleaned up, but he can't get into the bedroom. So he calls the police. The police show up. They uh, have to force their way into the bedroom. Doris is lying on the bed. She's been strangled with a stocking. Uh, you know, and she's also been, um, mutilated. She's had the, uh, her left breast has been carved up and the skin has been, uh, carved away from that. She's not as mutilated as, uh, Margaret Lowe, but she's still, uh, in pretty bad shape. And so you have these two killings, uh, you know, two murder scenes now being processed at the same time. And, you know, the police are like sort of Dunned uh, by this, they, they obviously not. There, there aren't two people running around mutilating women at the same time. The odds of that are rare. They know these crime scenes um, are related. They can actually tell from the crime scene. They're they're looking at the crime scene. There's a uh, there's a dresser there. It's got dust on it. They can tell from like shapes in the dust that items have been removed. Uh, that the killer has left with sort of like uh, souvenirs. And, um, but he's not left sort of any clues as to, again, as to his identity. So the police now have two more murders. Uh, they're processing these crime scenes at the same time. They still have no clue sort of who this guy is. What they don't realize, obviously, at this point, though, is that he's also been busy elsewhere. And he, he makes a mistake. And this is what sort of, once, that, once he makes this mistake, the case wraps up actually very quickly. But he makes a blunder and uh, he screws up and then Scotland Yard sort of nab him. Yeah, talk about that because that, that comes on the, uh, the, ne- the next evening after, um, after the, the low murder. Uh, he picks up a 25-year-old Catherine uh, Mulcahy. He so he does he actually so the night of February twelfth uh, is a very busy night for him. So he murders Margaret Lowe on February eleventh. On February twelfth, uh, there are there are three attacks actually. Um, so he he kills Doris Janot, but he also t- he attacks two other women and they survive. And the first one he attacks is actually a woman named Greta Haywood. He meets her in a bar a restaurant i think it was called the trocadero off piccadilly uh circus 
and Greta is there to meet her boyfriend. And she's sitting at a table by herself, and uh, this airman approaches her and basically says, hey, you're very pretty. Can I sit with you? And she says, well, you know, I'm meeting my boyfriend. He says, oh, well, don't worry about that. Let me buy you a drink. And he's, he's very persuasive. I mean, this guy was confident with the ladies. He was very suave. He was a very smooth operator. Um, he sort of wears down Greta's uh, defenses, and she says, uh, yes, you know, sure, sure you, you, you can buy me a drink. So he, he buys her a drink, and then he, he convinced her to walk her uh, out and, and go somewhere to grab a bite to eat. And they leave, and she goes sort of reluctantly. Um, she, she leaves with him. They're, they're walking uh, through Piccadilly Circus. They turn down, a, they turn down like a, a, a dark alley or a street. Um, and he pulls her into a doorway and starts kissing her. And she tells him, stop, stop, please, you know, please stop. And, you know, he doesn't. And she says, please stop. And then he stops and he looks at her. And it's interesting. She actually says that he suddenly seemed to go into a trance. And he starts mumbling to himself. I can't. I write in the book what he said. He, I can't remember what he starts mumbling. But he starts mumbling something to himself, and he starts choking her, just starts uh, strangling her. And while he's strangling her, he's still mumbling. And he's in this like weird trance-like state, according to what she says. Um, she screams for help. You know, she's obviously you know she's fighting him off. She's beat, you know beating at his arms, and she screams really loud. Just at that time, a cold delivery man happens to be crossing uh, the mouthway of the alley where they are, and hears her screams. And he comes running down the alley and finds what's going on and scares, you know, Cummins away. Cummins takes off. What he's done is he has left his regulation gas mask at the scene. He drops it and uh, leaves it at at the scene. Um, The uh, guy who ran to sort of Greta Haywood's rescue sort of picks her up off the ground, finds the gas mask, picks it up. And they go off and they, they look for a police constable. They find one. They say, you know, this woman's been attacked. Uh, the, the attacker left this at, at the crime scene. And the constable takes the woman, you know, Greta Haywood, to, to Scotland Yard to make a statement. While that's all happening, uh, you know, Gordon Cummins, his bloodlust is up. You know, he, he has not satisfied whatever it is that's, that's driving him. He goes into Regent Street and he picks up a, uh, a prostitute named Catherine Mulcahy um, and she takes him home to his flat. And again, you know, this, this is a guy, he's in uniform, he's handsome, he's suave. You know, why, why isn't a woman going to feel you know, safe bringing someone like this, you know, home? He's not some down and out creepy guy. He's, you know, he, he looks all together. So, uh, you know, Catherine Mulcahy brings him back to his flat is very cold that night. She lights the gas fire in her apartment. She takes her clothes off, but she leaves her boots on, um, which is very fortunate for her because he starts getting undressed. She says the same thing. He sort of kind of goes into this weird trance-like, uh, she says a weird look comes over his face and he lunges at her and starts strangling her. And she, because she's got her boots on, it saves her. She actually kicks him really hard in, uh, in the shins and it drops him to the floor. And she goes running into the hallway screaming. She's naked. She's just got her boots on. She goes running into the hallway screaming, uh, you know, help, help him being murdered. And one of her neighbors, a lady who lives across the way, opens the door and says, you know, get in. And Catherine goes inside and they're in the neighbor's doorway 
and they're looking into uh, Catherine's apartment, and it's dark. And they hear this voice from the darkness say, can, uh, can someone throw me a match, please? And so they toss a match into the apartment, and he, he lights this match. And they see him, by the light of the match, get dressed. He puts on his uniform. He comes out. He looks over the neighbor's shoulder at Catherine, and he says, I'm so sorry. And he takes out money, and he, he drops the money he owes her like on the floor for her. And then he, he walks off. It's very, very bizarre. And she screams after him, you're a murderer, you're a murderer. You know, and he just like sort of hurries off you know, um, into the night. While all this is going on, Greta Hayward is giving her statement to a Scotland Yard detective. And, uh, you know, the Scotland Yard detective looks at this gas mask that's been sort of left behind. And he opens it up and he sees the military registration number in there. And this is what sort of puts police onto the trail of sort of who they're after. Yeah, so so talk about you know he he makes a couple mistakes there. So he leaves behind a couple of things. He, he also leaves behind a belt, I believe. He left, yeah, other. yeah. He left behind a uh, <coughs> he left behind a belt uh, at Catherine Mulcahy's apartment, uh, which is later um, linked to him. And then obviously he leaves behind his gas mask, and it's the gas mask that really does him in. There are a couple of things about the gas mask. First of all, so. They've got this registration number. So Scotland Yard detectives call up the uh, Ministry of Defense. They're like, we have this military-issued gas mask. We've got this registration number. Can you tell us who it belongs to? They check. You know, they wait. They wait. They're sent by the phones. They're waiting. They're waiting. Again, no computers to type this stuff into, right? It's all paperwork. They wait. They get a call back. A while later, they're like, oh, it belongs to an airman named Gordon Cummins. He's stationed, you know, out in Regent's Park. The other thing um, that they find in the satchel that the gas mask is in is gravel. And again, talking about like sort of manual uh, detective work, they do a microscopic examination of the gravel found in the gas mask case, and they find that it matches the gravel uh, of the air raid shelter where Evelyn Hamilton uh, was strangled. And, uh, you know, I, I nerd out on this stuff because I just think, you know, how badass are these to take, you know, it's just like yeah. so cool, you know, it's just like really, I mean, this is like real, like true, like hardcore detective work is, is really great. And so what happens is, so they've got from the gas mask registration number, they have Gordon Cummins name. They know where he's stationed. So they call the, they call the, um, the uh, billet, you know, where he's, where he's stationed and they say, you know, do you have an airman there named Gordon Cummins? And, you know, the master sergeant is like, yeah. And Scott here goes, well, we want to talk to him. And uh, Sergeant's like, okay, sure. So Gordon Cummins comes home on that Saturday morning. And I think the date is now the 13th. It's the morning of Saturday the 13th. He comes up and he comes home late. It's like 3.30 in the morning. You know, I think curfew was like 10 p.m. or so. He's been out because, you know, he's he's been doing a lot of, like, stuff. And, um or it might have been the morning of the 14th. I can't remember. Anyways, he comes home early in the morning. And as he's sneaking in, uh, sort of the night watch have been on the lookout for him. And a guard goes, you're in trouble, mate, uh, because the police have called and they want to talk to you. You, you go to your go to your you know, bunk and, and stay there. A detective's coming to pick you up. And, you know, his response is like, well, shit, what did I do? Um, you know, he's, he's like playing dumb. Uh, Scotland Yard, they show up. It's like 4.30 in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning. They show up. They, they pick him up. They 
they search his tunic, you know, that he's wearing, and they find in it a uh, a gold pen uh, with the initials DJ carved into it. Um, now, remember, if, you, if, if I said at the Doris Janot crime scene, or they saw some items had been removed from the dresser, from like the shapes left in the dust. One of the things they thought that had been removed was a, a pen. The other thing they thought that might have been removed was a comb and with broken teeth. And they find in his tunic, they find a pen and they find a broken tooth comb. And so they're like, why don't you come down to the, uh, you know, come down to the police, uh, police house and uh, talk to us. They take him into custody. Uh, you know, they show him his gas mask. They're like, is this yours? And he goes, yes. And they're like, well, it was found at the scene of, a, of an attack, you know, last night on a young lady. Care to explain yourself? And uh, he, he does admit to picking up uh, sort of Greta Haywood, but then he downplays everything else. He has no recollection of um, sort of, you know, attacking her. And if he did, he's very sorry. And, you know, if you give me her phone number, I'll happily uh, call her and apologize and sort of all that uh, sort of thing. And then they show him the fountain pen from the Doris Janot crime scene. They show him the comb. He has no recollection, he says, of uh, taking those into his possession. He has no recollection of meeting Doris Janot. This is where the case, by the way, John, gets really frustrating. Um, because you want to know why the guy did these things. And from this moment on, he just plays he plays it dumb. Um, you know, He just says he has no memory at all. And so they go back to the gar- barracks. He's now in custody. They go back to the barracks and they, they basically tear the place apart. They search, they search his bunk. They search his, um, uh, you know, trunk where he keeps his clothes and things like that. They, they tear apart the kitchen in the barracks and they find a couple of things. They find, uh, they find a shirt in his, um, property box that has what might be blood on it. And then in the kitchen stashed in the back of a cupboard, they find a uh, a cigarette case with the initials LW engraved in it. Evelyn Oatley, the second victim, was known also by the name Lita Ward. So they link and they call Lita's husband, Evelyn's husband, down from Blackpool. He identifies a cigarette case as being one of hers. Um, the other thing that happens is. Catherine Mulcahy, who was attacked in her apartment and, you know, kept her boots on, which saved her life, she goes to the police. She actually initially didn't want to go to the police because she knew the police would say, did he pay you? And if she said yes, they would take her, you know, take the money. And that's what they do, you know, not because they're being cruel, but they they, they want the money as evidence. And so, and this obviously obviously stretches out over like several days as part of the investigation. But what happens is they've got Cummins in custody. They've got uh, in his possession the fountain pen, the comb that was belonged to Doris. They've got the cigarette case that belonged to Evelyn Oatley, also known as Lita Ward. They've got left-handed fingerprints. They actually had him sign a witness statement, and they, they gave him a pen and. They don't say anything about left-handed fingerprints. They just want to see what hand he picks the pen up with. He picks it up with his left hand and signs. You know, They take his fingerprints. They are able to match his fingerprints with the prints that have been lifted from the crime scene. They've got the gas mask left at the attack uh, on Greta Haywood. They've got the gravel and the gas mask case matching the gravel from the air raid shelter uh, that Evelyn Hamilton was found in. 
And then with Catherine Mulcahy, uh, they do a bit of kind of like uh, forensic accounting, uh, which I don't, you know, probably wasn't even a thing back in that day. But what they do is they go to the paymaster at the, uh, you know, at the uh, air billets where um, uh, Cummins is stationed. And they're like, can we see, you know, all the stash of bills that you paid, you used to pay out, uh, you know, the service members this week. And the guy's like, yeah, sure. And so, you know, he presents all these big stack of bills and, you know, they start comparing the serial numbers on the bills that have been used to pay out servicemen that week with the serial numbers on the bills uh, used to pay Catherine Mulcahy, and they match the serial numbers from the bills Catherine Mulcahy uh, received with the serial numbers went to the set of bills that were used to pay servicemen from that station that week. So that's another fancy kind of like piece of uh, detective work they did. So they've, they've got the guy. Now, What's interesting about Frederick Cummins is he never says he didn't do it. He just always says, I don't remember doing it. And this is his, uh, this is his defense. And uh, he, he goes on trial. Uh, he goes on trial for murder. And um, the trial lasts only one day. It's a one day trial because, I mean, the evidence is like slam bang. Uh, you know, his wife shows up. She's there. She supports him. Um, and says what a wonderful guy he is. Um, you know, they, they, they talk to other service members who like say he never showed sort of any, uh, violent, uh, tendencies. You know, he was a ladies man and he sort of like made up stories about himself, but he never, uh, showed any hint of violence or sort of murderous impulse. Uh, the jury takes like 35 minutes to convict him. And he's uh, sentenced to death, which was the mandatory sentence back in those days. You know, when he was sentenced to death in British court, the uh, court clerk would come up to the judge and place a black cap on the judge's head. And then the judge would uh, read the sentence of death and you'd be taken away. And at that point, you know, today someone's sentenced to death. There's a lengthy appeal process. You're on death row for years. In 1942, when he was sentenced to death, there was a two-week appeal process. You were hanged on the second Tuesday after your conviction. Uh, they didn't mess around. And uh, he, was, he goes to the gallows in, uh, I think it's Wandsworth Prison on, I think it's June 25th, 1942. He's actually hanged, ironically, during an air raid. Um, just as the like hood is put over his head, the air raid sirens begin to sound. And, uh, and then he's dropped into oblivion. He never, ever confesses. What's interesting is he does. His wife actually comes to visit him every day in prison, even up to the day before his execution. She comes to visit him, stands by him the whole time. He writes a letter to his wife. Um, again, this was something uh, I found after, <laughs> after I wrote the book. I was like, oh, damn. Um, <laughs> but he writes a letter to his wife, and he says to her in the letter, he says, um, "You know." I don't have any memory of doing these things, but you know, the evidence is there. And if they said I did it, then I, I must have done it. And that's the closest he ever came to a, to a confession. But why he did these things, we have no idea. So to folks who are kind enough to read the book, please don't write to me asking why he did it, because if I knew, I would have put it in there, but, but we don't. And I think... John, I, I think that's uh, actually the big, that's the biggest mystery of the blackout ripper uh, killings is uh, not who, but why. 
Yeah, and it, it, it's it's this interesting psychological question. It's like, was this guy really in a state where he somehow like not to use the word blackout in a different way, but you know, that's black blacked out, blacked like, out. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting because you know um, Gre- Greta Haywood um, and then uh, Catherine Mulcahy, who survived the attacks, they both say. You know, they both said he either went into a trance or he had a strange expression come across his face before he he lunged at them. So you do wonder if there was some, I was going to say weird mental, obviously some weird mental thing has to be going on because regardless if you're in a trance or not, you have to be mentally aware to do what he did. But you have to wonder if some fugue state or something came over him. But it is, it is, uh, it is bizarre. Um, you know, it's a, a lot of killers, you know, once convicted, you know, they'll, they'll confess just, for the sake of, you know, hopes for leniency or, you know, whatever their religious beliefs might be, you know, better afterlife, that kind of thing. But he, um, he never, he never said anything. Um, one of the detectives who escorted him to prison and, you know, back and forth to the police station during his interrogations described him as a very sort of, uh, friendly chap, uh, you know, shook hands with a detective every time they met, you know, to say hello and just talked about random things in the news and, carried on like there was nothing at all going on like just seemed totally um oblivious to sort of the 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 seriousness of his situation but didn't seem worried or didn't seem to care about it at all he's he's a very he's a very unique and bizarre individual yeah and i'm sure in in the years since um plenty of people i'm sure have tried to investigate and figure out you know was there some something that occurred in his youth and his upbringing that would cause him? Because the the sheer violence of the crimes would indicate someone who has a hatred for women or or something. Yeah, like and and if I'm remembering correctly, even when I looked through the uh, the the case files, the Scotland Yard case files, which are at the British National Archives, I, I think there might have even been a reference in there saying that they couldn't find anything in his background to suggest uh, anything that would spark this kind of behavior or indicate that um the capacity to behave this way was sort of present and lurking so it, like i said you know his family was was amazed by it w- were really stunned by it you know um everyone who knew him was just really shocked that he he was capable of this it's so which strange. just goes to show you, it, it's always the quiet ones right that's what they always <laughs> say you know <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Well, I mean, you know, like at least there's some signs that you look back with uh, a lot of the the most famous serial killers and you look back and you're like, oh, terrible home life. You know, they were abused and tortured as children or like killed animals growing up. There's some. Right. Right. Tortured squirrels down in the basement. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. Uh, And and, and nothing, nothing like that with with, uh, Cummins. You know, he got along well with his parents, uh, you know. got along okay with his brother and uh yeah it's just odd and like i said he, he was, his wife thought he was a loving caring husband um it's it's a mystery it's a mystery like i said it's very frustrating i, I you know i wish i had more answers as to why but uh i don't just a f- absolutely fascinating case though i mean as you said uh throughout the work that the police did the detectives did was uh, absolutely remarkable and the fact of the matter is i mean let's be honest this guy wasn't exactly a, a master criminal either it doesn't seem because he left behind a lot of evidence from the he, fingerprints that 
he left behind a lot. He left behind a lot of evidence. And in this case, I mean, the, the detective. There, there is great detective work in this case, without a doubt. You know, from tracking down where Evelyn Hamilton, you know, sort of like ate her her dinner to you know, sort of like finding out you know who she was and where she was staying. Um, you know, seeing the dust patterns on the bureau in in Darcy's room and realizing things had been lifted there. Uh, you know, determining the victim was uh, the the attacker was left-handed. Brilliant detective work. Um, but this is a case of, I mean, this is a case of pure luck. I mean, if he hadn't left behind the the gas mask, uh, he probably, I mean, no doubt he would have kept on um, killing. I mean, if he hadn't left behind the gas mask and if Catherine Mulcahy hadn't saved herself, obviously she would have been uh, the next victim. And he probably, he probably would have uh, kept on going until he screwed up or else he you know, went off to, you know, a war zone and, um, and got killed or moved on to, um, to other things. So it could have very well sort of kind of been like a Jack the Ripper situation where, you know, kill, 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 kill. And then suddenly where's the guy gone? Um, and it's just because of dumb luck. He left that gas mask. Uh, it, it, there's actually, um, uh, there was a statement from one of his, um, sort of, uh, service colleagues uh where after he'd left his gas mask um and then he returns home or returns back to the billet and the night watch goes hey you're in trouble detectives want to talk to you he goes to his bunk and his one of his bunk mates is still up and uh come and says to the bunk mate he goes oh he goes i'm in it he goes my my gas mask has been found at the scene where a woman was attacked so like he knew he'd messed up you know you know like oh shit like i'm i'm in it now so uh, <laughs> uh, so if, uh, but if he hadn't done that, yeah, then, you know, like I said, we'd either be talking about a much higher body count or be wondering, you know, who was responsible for it. That's incredible. What's, was there, uh, the last question I have for you is, was there any indication that he ever saw actual combat? No, no, he didn't see actual combat. He, um, he got called up in 1941 and I think he logged about a thousand hours, uh, training time flying time uh, you know he did well on his tests uh he got stationed uh at an air crew training facility uh in regent's park and he was continuing his uh his training his train there but he never saw he never saw any combat interesting yeah, yeah it just adds more to the mystery you know i know i know it's uh it's um it's not said it was that was one of the other things too that uh sort of fascinated me about the story was the fact that um you know the serial killer was an raf uh Airman, I'm like, wow, you know, that's uh, that kind of added a whole other unique uh, element to the story. Yeah, it's bizarre. Um, f- fascinating story. I, I really appreciate you coming to talk about it. Tell people uh, where they can keep up on top of what you're up to and what are you working on next? Uh, I have a website. It's Simon Reed, R-E-A-D, SimonReadWriting.com. And uh, my books are listed there. Um in the Dark is still available as a the, the paperback was published by Penguin. It's out of print now, but it's still available as a Kindle read. Um, but uh, and my last couple of books have been uh, military history. Uh, my last book was a book about Allied efforts to sink sort of Hitler's uh, four capital warships during the war. And part of that, I'd written a biography on uh, Winston Churchill's adventures as a war correspondent, kind of a cross between Downton Abbey and Indiana Jones. Um, and that one has, has actually been optioned for uh, a possible miniseries. 
So, oh, very we'll cool. See, we'll see what happens there. But uh, right now, I'm working on a book called Scotland Yard, and it is a history of Scotland Yard told through its most infamous murder investigations. So, a history of Scotland Yard from its creation in 1829 up to the eve of uh, World War II. And if you like murder and true crime, there is a lot. There is a lot of murder in this book. Originally, it was called Scotland Yard, a history and 65 killings. And I, I think there are more than 65 killings. So I've had to like change the title. Now it's just, <laughs> <laughs> now it's just called Scotland Yard. 65 plus. <laughs> 65 plus. But um, yeah, I've got, this is the uh, second draft manuscript right here. And uh, I start third, uh, third draft revisions, actually uh, probably later today. And it's, it's going to be out in the U.S. and the U.K. I think it's coming out in the U.S. in 2025 because we want to avoid uh, an election year. Uh, my, my, my last book came out on Election Day 2020, which, like, can you imagine a worse day for a book <laughs> to, uh, to come out? So we want to avoid that. So um, the book is uh, – I think the book's going to come out in the U.S. in 2025. It will be out in the U.K., I believe, in um, – in 2024, it's actually doing my British publishers uh, in December. So I'm getting okay. down to the wire. I got, I got to, <laughs> I got to get busy. But uh, so that's in the works, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll see how it does. Very cool. Yeah, I'll, we'll have to keep in touch on that one. That absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Well, the the book again is the true story of the Blackout Ripper in the dark uh, by Simon Reed. Go check it out. I'll have sh- uh, links in the show notes. Uh, but again, Simon, thank you so much for coming on today. John, this is great. Uh, you know, the questions were fantastic. It was a fun conversation. I was, I was worried. I'm like, oh, God, you know, I wrote the book 20 years ago. Am I going to remember it? And I'm like, oh, my God, I've rambled so much. So thank you. It's been great. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this week's mystery. Please consider rating, reviewing, and sharing with a friend if you enjoy the show. It helps us independent podcasts get noticed. We'll be back next week with an all-new mystery. And until then... You've been listening to From the Void.